citizens of Ukraine. We, we are the citizens of the world and we just want to stop uh, the blood in our, in our country. There is a lot of fake information right now and uh, I'm, I'm from Donbass originally and I have a lot of family and friends there and I'm so sorry that people there, they don't have access to the true information. They keep watching this fake news and I'm trying, I'm trying to prove them that it's real. My, my mom and my brother, they're in Ukraine and they particularly in Kyiv right now and I'm so worried for them. Um, they have to like hide in basement every day and I have to I have I, I contact all my all my friends who who also in Kiev and they particularly in Kiev then they cannot leave their city and every everybody just keep hiding in basements and metro stations and, and I, I lived all my student life in Kiev I know like I know the city, I, when I see the streets where I used to walk, like everywhere where I lived and right now it's all in ruins and I don't even know, like, what did people do to, to just be killed for no reason? Hello listeners. What you just heard was the voice of two women from Ukraine demonstrating outside the White House. The Fly spoke with them on Saturday, February 26th. This episode is going to sound very different than our usual interviews. We will be bringing you the voices speaking on the war in Ukraine from two sides of the world. In part one of this episode, we will let the voices of the demonstrators outside the White House speak for themselves. In part two, you will hear from Jill Doherty, Georgetown professor and former Moscow bureau chief for CNN, who called us in from Moscow on Monday, February 28th. She'll provide some historical context and a view into the situation inside Russia right now. Thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, we're going to dive into part one, a spotlight on the voices of the pro-Ukrainian demonstrators right outside the White House. The first people you will hear are all Ukrainians living in America, urging the U.S. to aid the Ukrainians in the resistance to the invasion. I'm Ukrainian. I live uh, in in US for the last five years, um, but I still support Ukraine. And I came here to show, um, you know, that that there are a lot of Ukrainians here, and we are grateful um, US for the, the the support they're giving us so far. But uh, we we need more, <laughs> and we need to to keep that support to to still coming to Ukraine. Uh, we understand that US cannot send troops to to Ukraine. That that probably will be the beginning of the. World War Three, and we definitely don't not need that. But we need more weapon. We need uh, uh, ideally to to U.S. to help us to close the sky uh, over the Ukraine. But if that's not possible, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, more weapon, um, and and whatever else can be done, and, and more pressure and more sanctions uh, on Russia. We, we have a lot of family. Uh, they all in the western region, so in Lviv and, and near Lviv. But they still had to leave the city, uh, leave the city, and move to some nearby villages uh, to their relatives, um, because in in big cities is still a bit dangerous, even though. There haven't been any fights in, in Lviv so far, uh, but there have been uh, sirens about the potential bombing, so it, it's still quite scary there. I mean, my daughter had to learn a lot of new words, <laughs> you know, had to, she was asking me what, what is, 
how is that happening? What is the war and, and you know, how, you know, people actually attacking? So, of course, it all looks surreal to us. I mean, we never expected it will be to that scale. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we're trying to explain to our kids that, uh, you know, we are fighting and what we are fighting for and, uh, you know, keep trying to keep them on, on ease so, you know, they will know what's happened, but they will not be scared. And we moved to United States from the Lviv, from Ukraine, and we have the families there. We are worrying about them because they just took our cities, they just uh, want to take our country. My family, my relatives, they are now uh, trying to get to Poland, trying to get some help because they don't know what to do. They took the cities, they took everything. They wanted to become Ukraine, become the Russia, but we won't forgive them and we won't. We don't want to, them to allow to do that. So we came here. We are now we, we are now living in Philadelphia, and we came here to show that we are together with Ukraine. And so we are in uh, here in. Uh, so we are planning to be uh, every day. Uh, we are planning to come to gather together to show that we are Ukraine is not alone, and we are with them. That we are far from from them but we'll try to help as we can we are donating a lot of money we're trying to purchase everything that our army needs now because a lot of people are dying they are to taking our main uh, city kiev and we are really we don't sleep for uh, almost four days we are we are trying to look at all the news and we are really worrying we want uh, us to hear uh, the Biden uh, hear us because he can do a lot of. He can show that United States uh, can uh, transfer some military to Ukraine. I know that it's difficult to do, but few days they are just talking. They don't do anything, just talking, and they just uh, are telling us that they will do something, but we don't see. Ukraine is now only one country who is doing alone we are alone and we want all the countries help us some countries already help they uh, they transfer their army to ukraine they transfer some um, help so we see that but the united states needs to do it quicker because it it takes a lot of lives and a lot of deaths yeah i am from ukraine and i am here because uh, as you know uh, Russia inva uh, invasion is uh, nowadays in our country and a lot of our people dying at this moment because civil people, not even military and we are here just to stand together with our country so we are trying to, to do anything we can just to help them all countries can help at this moment uh, at least they are trying but do not enough for us so we're trying to to ask all them president biden as well to help more than they uh, doing right now because we can fight ourselves but not not enough uh, you know military stuff we we cannot cover our sky from Russian uh, fl flights uh, so they're bombing our cities every day we need 
from the other world to help to close the sky, to help with fighting this uh, uh, everything from these missiles, missiles, bombs, from all that stuff. So we are here to stand together with our nation, with our people. We'll be standing to, uh, all uh, these days and all tomorrow. And we are planning to come here again. Whenever we uh, will do it as many times as will be needed. And it's not very cold here because <laughs> we came from Ohio. It's much colder there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the next people you will hear from are named Larissa, Walter, and Alex. They are all Americans who joined the Ukrainian demonstrators outside the White House. Larissa, what brought you here today? Um, it was a visit to a friend that happened to coincide with the Ukrainian protests that are happening in Washington, D.C. this weekend. So I took my two young kids to show them what it's worth fighting for. I would like to see the president activate NATO to start protecting Ukrainian airspace. I would like to see Russia thrown out a SWIFT. And I would like to see the world take stronger actions against Putin in general because he's been running the show and the rest of the world threw their hands up for years already. My kids are third generation removed from being born in Ukraine. My parents weren't even born in Ukraine. So we speak the language at home. They go to Ukrainian school. They're active in Ukrainian organizations. And I want them to understand that when somebody attacks your family and your livelihood, you need to fight back and that right will always prevail, and you can't just sit around and watch the world fall apart without you, without being active. They need to have a spine in life. Uh, I think we have to stop Putin now, uh, because if we don't stop him now, he'll keep going. He'll, he'll go after the other countries. He'll take more. So he has to be stopped and he has to exit Ukraine. My wife was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine in, in, in Lviv for two years so uh, I know of course I know her very well but she's got a lot of friends here as well that are really good people and they they speak very fondly of the Ukrainians it it it, it breaks my heart it absolutely breaks my heart because I because of that connection that I do have and uh, it angers me that um, someone of Putin's very low character can can get away with as much as he's gotten away with my, my parents are uh, immigrants from Belgium uh, so we know what it's, you know, I know what it's like from them, what, what happens when things like this go bad. You have to stand up to these people now, vigorously. They only understand uh, a, a very forceful no, uh, regardless of how, what that embodiment is. We were here last night. We're going to be here tomorrow. Our friends are going to be here. We, we, we are not going to stop. This is, this is essential. This is what our alliance with Europe is all about. Uh, now is the time to stand up, com unified, the whole country, Europe, the, the, the U.S., the rest of the world, now. Uh, my name's Alex Polk. Um, I live here. I uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine for two years from 2016 to 2018. So this is me trying to show my solidarity, uh, not only for my friends in Ukraine, but the entire country as a whole, because I fell in love with the culture and the beautiful land. And it's really important that we stand here with Ukraine today. 
I definitely think that we should be sending more uh, defensive military equipment to help them close the skies. Um, I also think that we should be sending more humanitarian aid to the borders. I don't think that we've been necessarily carrying as much of the weight as some of our EU partners. I know that they're already in the region, but I think that we should be showing our support by actually being there on the ground, helping with the refugees, helping assist them with medical equipment, everything like that. And I've been writing to senators um, and Congress people hoping that this message can get through as well. I encourage other people to do that as well. The following conversation we had with Ivan, one of the demonstrators, and it is one that we just could not get out of our minds. We chose to end part one with it because we think it will stick with you too. Yeah, so my name is Ivan. I am, um, well, I was a student here in the U.S. Now I'm just, I'm working. Um, have been in Ukraine. So my all my family lives in Ukraine. I, I have been in Ukraine just a month ago. I came back on January 29th. And uh, so it was peaceful there. And uh, we had a great celebration of Christmas. I remember walking down Jutomer City and just seeing, uh, you know, Christmas fair and just seeing people even being you know in the country at war because we have been at war for eight years just seeing uh, smiley faces and uh, faces of hope and so now it's it's uh, it's uh, devastating to know that uh, what's happening right now with uh, Russia with Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine and I mean shooting civilians just just um, there is a new term that says a Russism Russism not fascism but Russism uh, from Russia, it's uh, it, it feels like uh, in some way like 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 a genocide because they're saying they want to de-Ukrainize Ukraine. Well, you can't do that because it is it is we are it's Ukraine. It's it's in our title. It's going to mean to kill most of us. Yeah, I think in uh, 60 years after Second World War, uh, what happened in the world is that we developed a tolerance for evil, and I would like. Uh, our Western world and, and you know especially President Biden and the US to to develop intolerance to evil just uh, and show it more in the tangible way so right now we have a problem in Ukraine that not only the cities that are near the border with Belarus and Russia are being under attack but also the cities that are far from the border why because we don't have enough equipment to stop the rockets to stop the planes of uh, jets of Russia so what we're we are, what I would love, what we're asking, is to defend Ukraine from air. I don't know by what means. I'm not a military person myself. As you know, giving weapons and doing some, you know, bold steps, saying this is this is not not just saying this is not okay, but acting upon it. You know, um, I mean, I'm glad again. I'm not ungrateful. I'm glad for all the sanctions that have been taken and. Uh, I'm, uh, but also I'm thinking that, you know, I wish they were taken eight years ago when, when Russia started uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Now it seems like you have this 200-pound guy hitting up about a 100-pound person and uh, you're just standing there and saying, well, we're not going to feed you. We're going to cut in all the food. But it's, it's not going to help him. You know, he's not going to stop beating the guy who is much smaller than him. He's going to keep keep beating him but uh, I mean I'm, I'm very proud of our Ukrainian soldiers that are standing there and uh, fighting but I but we're here standing and saying first of all we approve whatever US is already doing and Western world is already doing but we are also saying we have to have more intolerance to evil and that's okay that's virtue that's virtue that's not a, that's not a vice so that's what we're that's what I'm doing here and I think most of the people here are, are also standing for
So we just gave you a sample of the mood in front of the White House, but we were curious about things on the other side of the world in Russia. We spoke with Professor Jill Doherty, who served as CNN's Moscow Bureau Chief for two decades and currently serves as both an analyst on Russia and a professor at Georgetown. Right now, she's in Moscow and has graciously offered her knowledge to the podcast. Professor Doherty's angle gives crucial context to the situation in Ukraine. Here it is, part two of our special report. Let's begin. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Doherty. Uh, how's it going over there in Moscow? Uh, well, as you can imagine, it's not going well. I mean, it's a very, very dire situation. Uh, we're actually in a warlike situation in Ukraine. And here in Moscow, I think it's really um, a pivotal time. It is, for me, it is really a turning point for Russia because the reaction to what President Putin is doing is going to have an effect on the country economically, socially, and militarily for, I think, a very long time. And are there a lot of demonstrations happening in the city? Is there a lot of unrest? You know, I wouldn't say a lot in the sense that they are not huge numbers, but they're very significant. For example, over the past four days, which is since war started in Ukraine, there have been 6,000 people arrested, detained uh, at these protests. The protests have taken place across Russia. So it's not just in the big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. It's actually at any given time, it's been like 25 cities to 50 cities. And um, the numbers you know, they're in the thousands. And in the big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, there really are significant numbers of people. But remember, over the past number of years, because of the protests for Navalny, the opposition leader, they've really cracked down on protests. So they try to shut it down pretty quickly. And people, I just spoke with one young person who was arrested and detained and then let go. So if you wanted to talk about that, we could a little bit how it works. But, you know, so I think, you know, just bottom line, it's significant that these protests are taking place. They are not huge numbers, but they're big enough, I think, to be really important. Yeah, going off of what you said, uh, talking about the people in this situation, tell us about like the players in this situation. What do you think Putin's thinking? What do you think the people of Russia are thinking? What do you think the Ukrainian government thinking is thinking? And what do you think the people of Ukraine are thinking during this dire moment? Wow, that's a huge question. But uh, let's start with President Putin, because he actually started all of this. I think that President Putin has been fixated on Ukraine for a very long time, uh, literally years. He believes that Ukraine is part of what should be the sphere of influence by Russia. And that's kind of the post-Soviet space, Ukraine, Georgia, along that border, the western border of Russia. He believes that NATO has been trying to move closer to Russia's borders and prevent and uh, present a threat to Russia. So he's intent on stopping it. And what he decided was to take military action, which is really the most shocking of all. I mean, even you know, for Russians and for people in Washington who watch Russia, it really was a shock. 
I mean, everybody could see it coming. The US government was warning that this military action could take place, but everybody kept saying, well, he wouldn't do that, would he? But he did. So Putin, it, I think, was willing to do it at this particular point because he figured, well, um, you know, the West is occupied. You have uh, President Biden getting out of Afghanistan. You have social unrest in the United States. Europe, he considers weak and really under the influence of the United States. And I think he just decided, you know, if you're going to bring Ukraine back into the fold, might as well do it now. But it is not turning out the way he expected. So that kind of gets us to Ukraine. Ukraine um, had problems with the eastern part of Ukraine, that breakaway region of the Donbass. And there are two breakaway people's republics that he last week recognized as independent. And that was a way of kind of, I think you would say, laying the basis for saying, well, we have to go in and protect our own people. Now, I mean, technically that's Ukraine, that's not Russia. But now that he has defined it as independent, he used that as an excuse to bring in a pretext to bring in Russian troops. But they're not stopping there. They have literally surrounded the entire country, as we all know, Ukraine. And now they are moving toward the capital. And it's, it's a military operation that everybody thought would be over very quickly because Russians have such overwhelming force. But it is not turning out that way. So the Ukrainians have been able to stop them. Uh, latest numbers, although the Russian government isn't admitting any numbers, but the latest numbers are at least 5,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. And that is a real problem for President Putin because, you know, when people are dead and wounded, you, he will pay a price back at home for people who not, will not want to support this military action. And then let's take it a, a step further. That's a military action. Then there is the entire sanctions regime. And I think Putin was expecting that, you know, NATO and the West would be divided because after all, you know, Germany has a lot of financial interests and business with Russia, et cetera. It didn't turn out that way either because the West has been actually quite united and they have introduced draconian sanctions that are really, really slamming Russia. Right now, there are Russian people who are standing in line at ATMs trying to get their money out, but the ruble is crashing. I mean, the ruble, you know, when I got here was about 70 rubles to the dollar. It's now, it goes anywhere from like 100 to 150. So the, the currency, the latest I saw, had dropped by 48%. That's huge for average Russians. So, uh, I, and I don't think this is just, you know, uh, going to last for a few weeks. This is really going to affect the Russian economy. So all, all told, it's a very serious situation militarily because nobody knows when Putin or where Putin will stop. And then economically for Russia, it's, it is a giant threat to you know, the economy and to, I think, political stability in Russia. And as an expert on Russian studies, can you give us the historical context for the ongoing invasion in Ukraine? 
You know, you have to go back. Wow, you would have to go back centuries, obviously, because Ukraine was the seat, as we all know, of Slavic culture, you know, early Russia, Kievan Rus. And so you go back to, boy, the Middle Ages for that. And that actually, in this part of the world, as you probably know, history plays an enormous role. So the fact that Kiev was the center of Russian and Slavic culture um, is a modern issue because now President Putin is actually claiming, well, there actually wasn't a Ukrainian state. Maybe there was a little bit, which is essentially around Kiev, but the rest of it was kind of added, and he would say, by the Soviet Union, as more and more pieces were pulled together, pieces from Poland and other places. The Ukrainians are saying, no, no, we, we are a country. We have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have our own language, our own culture, and we are not Russians. So already you have this gigantic cultural clash between you know, the Russians who are saying, you're not really a country, and the Ukrainians saying, yes, we are. And that may seem like kind of you know, history and past history, but it is a very current issue right now. People are speaking Ukrainian uh, in those regions. People are proud to speak Ukrainian, even if they can speak Russian. And you have, um, I think, real divisions, cultural divisions that are opening up. So history is very important. Adding on to the question about the historical context of this, uh, we want to hear your take about the common theory that uh, this is an attempt by Putin to reestablish Russia as a world power. Do you think that idea is credible or do you think it needs more working out? No, I think that's really probably a good way of thumbnailing it. Um, there's no question that he wants to have Russia as a great power. He figures that Russia always was, you know, even under the czars was a great power and it deserves to be again. He does not necessarily want to reconstitute the Soviet Union. I mean, I know that phrase is used, but I would say he does want to reassert the influence Russia has in all of those countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union or were under Soviet influence. He wants Russia to be the primary influence in those areas. And that sometimes could mean, you know, politically, economically, even militarily. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Been working nights, so I, my voice is not the best. But so he wants to reassert that power. And when he does that, it bumps up against NATO. And remember, if you go back to the early, the early 90s, like after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was the idea that maybe even Russia could eventually become part of NATO. That seems so long ago and so impossible right now, but there was kind of that idea. But what happened was there was no real overarching security agreement for Europe after the Cold War. And Putin feels that Russia was on its knees and really um, denigrated by the West, treated as not equal and very weak. And so now, as he has been able, at least until now, to rebuild Russia, rebuild the army, improve its economy, he figures that he can stand up to the West 
And I think that his idea is the West rubbed our noses in it you know, for so long. And now we're gonna show them what we can do. We can do pretty much whatever we want to do. And I think that's kind of the mentality. It is both this um, kind of imperial idea, but it's also very visceral. I mean, just think of the things that he said, the words that he's used over the past few days. I mean, the latest one, he's calling the West and NATO the uh, empire of lies. You know, so it's very emotional and very personal. And I think it really is emotional and personal for Putin. And zooming in on the West, what is your take on the U.S.'s current policy towards the Russian invasion? Do you think that the United States should do more to punish Putin for an unwarranted attack on a sovereign state? And is there even anything, in your opinion, that could dissuade Putin from continuing to invade Ukraine? Well, you know, sanctions, uh, a lot of people think sanctions aren't that important. And why don't we do something militarily? There are some people who would actually argue that, you know, the U.S. should send troops. I personally believe that would be a mistake. I mean, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and there is a reason for that, because Ukraine does not have its physical territorial sovereignty. There are two areas now that are considered independent little statelets, by at least by Russia. So... When NATO, when uh, NATO takes in new members, it wants those members to contribute to security in Europe. And I think at this point, obviously, Ukraine would not do that. But I think in terms of punishing Russia, you know, I don't think these sanctions are going to change his mind right now. I mean, he is carrying out this military operation. No sanctions stopped him. And the military operation continues. But it is these sanctions from Europe and the United States affecting the central bank, affecting the uh, Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, et cetera. These are really serious sanctions. There's never been anything like this before. And I can tell you, I've been talking with Russians just today about just average Russians. What are you thinking? You know, how is this affecting you? They are really scared because they don't know what is next. The economy is in very serious trouble because of this. So I think the sanctions at this point are to punish him for what he is doing. Uh, Now, will that stop him? Will he stop the military action? At this point, I don't think so. It doesn't look as if he's going to do that. But over time, this can really take a toll on Russia as a whole. Uh, What I think is going to be our final question is a question about escalation and the future implications of this. We spoke to demonstrators in front of the White House on Saturday, and since then, Putin has made nuclear threats. What is the likelihood of a nuclear strike coming from Russia? And what does this invasion mean for the overall security of the international system as a whole? That is a really great question. It's a very serious question. I mean, what President Putin did was he put the nuclear forces, all of the deterrent forces, on an extra high alert. Now, in a way, that doesn't really change too much because they already are on hair trigger alert, at least the nuclear uh, weapons are. But by doing that, it is really um, a sign. I think he's signaling to the West, 
in a very dangerous fashion that, you know, you tried to stop me and remember I've got nuclear weapons and remember what I can do with nuclear weapons. I do not believe, however, that President Putin wants a nuclear war. It would be insanity. It would be insanity. And I, I really, obviously the United States doesn't want that either. And so when the United States answered Putin's action, they didn't up his ante. They just said, oh, he's manufacturing a crisis. You know, our forces will continue as they are. So that was good, kind of keeps it at where, what it is. But what is very worrying about this is we only have one nuclear agreement left, and that is the New START agreement. And remember, the New START agreement was set to expire just at the moment that Joe Biden became president. And so very quickly, the Biden administration and the Putin administration, it was good at that point that they sat down and they extended immediately, they extended New START for another five years. But that's going to go really fast. So what I would really watch for and what I'm worried about is if Russia says we no longer want to talk about that security situation with New START, we're breaking off talks. I don't know that they're going to do that, but if they stop the security discussions with the United States, that would be very worrying because all of the other nuclear agreements are dead. They just don't exist. The only thing we've got is New START. And at the same time, we have more and more sophisticated nuclear and non-nuclear conventional weapons, you know, hypersonic missiles and all sorts of things that are, that are coming online. And Putin is very happy to talk about those as a threat to the United States and to NATO. So we're in very different, difficult and very dangerous territory with this. Well, thank you so much, Professor Doherty, for speaking with us today. I know that you're extremely busy, and we wish you the best of luck in Moscow. Thank you so much, and I'm really glad you're following this, because I will tell you, you know, in my history, which go, really goes back, I was an exchange student in uh, St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, many years ago, and all this is really, really you know, personal to me too, because I hate to see young Russians being affected by this. But this, in my lifetime, I think is one of the biggest turning points ever. I mean, the fall of the Soviet Union in 91 was huge. And the Berlin Wall, you know, was huge. But this is a turning point. And what kind of Russia we're going to see after this, I honestly don't know. Thanks for listening. Sadly, this episode, just like the current situation, comes without easy answers or quick resolutions. For now, all we can do is leave you with the sounds of the protesters.